0: go ahead and be seated. I want to invite you to begin making your way to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3 this morning. Rabbi Zachariah, who is a well-known apologist, he once told a story that comes from his native country of India, and it, I think it illustrates and or in truth for us this morning. This is how it goes. He, he said that there was this a wealthy man who, a merchant who went on a long journey. As he was going on this journey, he carried with him uh, his most precious jewels, carried with him a lot of wealth. And along the way, he encountered another traveler, a man who befriended him. and And this man who Met him, made it look like it was sort of a chance encounter when, yet all along, he knew that this man had great wealth, and so he intentionally tagged along with him. They began traveling together, and at the end of each day, they would arrive at a local inn and they would share a room together. Uh, and each man would wash up before going to bed that night. Now, the wealthy man had an idea that something was going on, kind of had a hunch that this man had some ulterior motives and that he was going to try and steal all of his wealth. So every night before they turned in for bed, the, the wealthy man would would say to the, to the other man, why don't you go and wash up first? So he'd go to wash up first, and the, the wealthy man, what he would then do is he would take all of his jewels, and he would hide it underneath the pillow of the thief. Sure enough, when it was the rich man's turn to go in and wash up for the night, the, the thief would would go through all the belongings looking furiously for, for the riches and to no avail. Every night he'd sleep on his pillow, mad that he couldn't find them. Finally, they came to the point where they were going to part ways and they were going to say goodbye. And the rich man at that point informed the thief that he knew all along what he was up to. He told them that, you poured all your energies into looking everywhere except under your own pillow. He said the wealth was nearer to you than you realize. Now perhaps there is a wealth that's nearer to you than you realize. That each and every day it's right there within your reach, but every day you fail to lay hold of. And of course, I'm not talking about monetary wealth. I'm talking about what the Apostle Paul described as the riches of God's glory. You see, in the book of Ephesians, for three chapters, Paul expounds on the weightiest of truths that characterize those who have been bought with the blood of Christ. He even goes as far to say that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that's at work in the lives of believers But while these things are true of all believers at all times, sometimes our everyday experience might tell us something different. When you and I wake up in the morning, sometimes we don't feel or experience these biblical realities. And so what you and I need in order to enjoy them and to realize them and to grab a hold of the wealth that is near is prayer. And before you turn me out... I'm not going to spend 35 minutes just telling you you need to pray more. What I want to tell you this morning is that you might need to just pray a little bit different. You need a particular kind of prayer, a prayer for power. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 and looking through verse 21, we have some of the greatest uh, words recorded in Scripture, one of the greatest prayers recorded in Scripture. Some have called this the, the holies of holies in the Christian life. Another writer called it a prayer for the impossible. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth season, I want to encourage you that this, this season, this period, doesn't have to be dictated by any one person, a particular set of st- circumstances, or anything else. This season in the life of Crosspoint can and should be dictated, really, with the degree that you bow the knee in prayer. And see, what the Apostle Paul is calling for here is not trite prayers, obligatory prayers, small prayers, but he's calling for persistent, bold prayers prayers for power and believe that if we prayed like paul does here and perhaps we would experience in our own lives individually and corporately things so supernatural that the only explanation is that god did them shows us three ways in which we should pray. The first one is in an attitude of humility. I mean, think about for a second the way that you typically pray. Do you ever consider how you approach God when you pray? Are you, you flippant? You simply presume to walk into God's presence and ask whatever you think you might need at the moment. And this isn't me trying to argue for something that's ritualistic. What I'm advocating for is that you and I, when we pray, we need to recognize the person that we are praying to. We need to esteem Him rightly. We need to have a right respect for God. We need to see God for who He is. So if you look at verse 14 again, you'll notice Paul takes a particular posture. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason. I mean, understand the reason why Paul is praying for this church in Ephesus. You only have to look back a couple of chapters And you find that what Paul is doing is he's in awe of God's redemptive plan. I mean, he marvels at how God has chosen believers before the foundation of the world and and how God has made them holy and blameless before him. He's he's marveling at the fact that God has taken sinners and redeemed them by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's for these reasons that Paul drops to his knees in prayer. You might think that's a normal posture, but it, it actually wasn't. Often Jews would pray standing up. It was, it was only in times of great desperation that they would have dropped to their knees. It was, it was a sign of reverence and respect. Uh, by bending the knee, you're, you're basically saying, Lord, I am completely dependent on you. And I'm not arguing that your prayers are only valid if you're on your knees. But at the end of the day, Dependence on the Lord is more a disposition of the heart than it is a physical posture of your body. And if this is how Paul prayed for the church, then this is really how you should pray for the church. When you pray with humble desperation, not not as a last resort, but as an acknowledgement that there is only one who can act on our behalf. And, And so here's a passage of Scripture that if you dwell on long enough and you come to understand that Paul is passionately praying for believers, shouldn't form the way that we pray. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is giving his sort of farewell address to this same church, to the elders of this church in Ephesus. And, And in Acts chapter 20, he's praying and he's not just kneeling, but he's also weeping. And the reason is that Paul knew the believers at Ephesus needed something that could only come from the power of God himself. Power. And notice to whom he bows the knee, to the Father. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, one of the things I love about my earthly father is that I always have his ear. I mean, no no matter how many miles we live apart or different time zone, I can always call him. He'll listen, and just as freely as we should be able to go to our earthly fathers, we should feel that same freedom to go to our heavenly Father. The fact that you and I have the Heavenly Father's ear, having been adopted into the family of God because of the work of Christ, believers are now given the privilege of an intimate relationship with the Father. And I think that's why Paul told them earlier in chapter 2, verse 18, that they have access in one spirit to the Father. And here we have a picture of Paul availing himself to that privilege. It's a privilege you and I have. You and I, we can come to him and we can expect his attention, we can expect his love, and it's not because you and I are so lovable. But it's because Christ, whom you and I have been united to, he is exceedingly lovable. And so, so here we have a privilege, here we have an intimacy, let's not neglect it. And Paul further tells us that we're not only to come to God on a bended knee as our Father but to acknowledge him as the originator of life. Look at verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, commentators will argue as to what exactly this means, but the most straightforward rendering of this verse seems to be that every family in heaven and on earth, every person, everywhere, without exception, including the angelic beings, they exist because God wills it. They exist because God wills it. our Father is the sovereign Father. And so so you and I can come to Him with a sense of confidence, not, not a sense of arrogance, thinking God owes us His blessings, but instead we should come with a humble confidence that's rooted in our position in Christ. Again, chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says that because of the reconciling work of Jesus, because of our union with him, we have access to God. Then chapter 3, he says that we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And to make things even better, our Father is rich. He's rich. Paul Paul prays for God to answer according to the riches of of his glory. And so here you have a rich and gracious God. Paul asked for God to grant the church strength. God loves to give good gifts to his children, particularly those things pertaining to the Spirit, not just material blessings, but but the Spirit's guidance, the Spirit's work. And so I, I have no doubt that the greatest thing that you can do, that I can do, is go before the Father, praying with humility, praying in desperation, and putting our confidence in Him. And so instead of waiting for a crisis to humble ourselves before God, prayer necessitates that we, that we go to Him every time we think about the majesty of God. We think about the fact that He's the author of salvation. But not only should we approach Him with humility, but there's a certain type of petition that we should have before it. We should be praying for spiritual strength and love. When we get to verses 16 through 19, what we have is the main focus of Paul's request here. And let me me just say that perhaps we would do well to take some cues from this. I mean, after all, we pray for all sorts of things. Things that we think we need, things that we want, but often if we take what we want to pray for and compare it to sort of things we see in the Bible, we might find a striking difference. Paul isn't praying for traveling mercies. He isn't praying for health issues. Not that those things aren't important, and we should pray for those things. Those aren't wrong. But Paul here is praying for what believers need most. He's praying for what you and I need most. Look at verse 16 again. That according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So so this is where you and I need strength. This is where we need power. We need it on the inside, not on the outside, because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.16 that the man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed. The, The reality, if you don't know, is that one day your body will perish. Decay, as time goes on, the body weakens, and yet, even as our outer body gets weaker and weaker, you and I have the privilege of seeing our inner person be strengthened, renewed by the Spirit, and, and think about it this way. It's not that Paul is saying, Lord, just take away my burdens, take away my problems, Instead he's saying, Lord, give me stronger shoulders to carry the load. That's what a power a powerful prayer looks like. Not Lord, take it away, but Lord help me. And this is this is the way you and I fight sin, the way we see the gospel spread, this is the way we live and to see the, the worth of God known is by praying for this kind of inner strength. Because Paul knows and you know, that there's days when you wake up You're not sure how you'll fight the good fight of faith. There may be days when you feel spiritually strong and healthy, but then there's days when you don't feel like delighting in Jesus and you're more prone to sin, you're more prone to wander. And yet, in those times, you and I can make an appeal to God that He would strengthen us through the Holy Spirit according to the riches of His glory. The riches that are nearer than you and I often realize. And these riches—it's not, it's not that God simply would reach into the endless treasures of grace and pour them out on His children. Although that is certainly true, what Paul is asking here is that the giving would correspond in nature to the riches of His glory. And what are the nature of the riches of His glory? Endless, inexhaustible, never-ending glory and power. For years and years and years. And the reason why we need to be strengthened with power through his spirit is well, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And the two really go to together here. They are, in a sense, one request. Paul uses the language of the inner man, then the heart, and then he uses the language of the strength of the spirit, and then of the indwelling Christ. And, and so what Paul isn't trying to do is sort of separates the second person and the third person of the Trinity. You know, he, to speak of the indwelling Christ and the indwelling Spirit is to speak of the same thing. Christ dwells in our hearts by the Spirit and it's part of the mystery that Christ dwells in believers, not in a tabernacle, not a temple, certainly not in this building. Now you might ask the question, I thought Christ already dwelt in my heart. Right? If I'm I'm a Christian, and and Paul is writing to Christians, why is he asking that Christ would dwell in their hearts if if that's something that is already true, believers? Well, it is true. See that in John chapter 14, but Paul is speaking about something more than Christ just dwelling in your hearts. Paul is talking about Christ ruling in your hearts. Paul's choice of words here for dwelling is, is an important word. It's it's a strong word. He he could have used the word that just simply means to inhabit, but instead he uses a word that means to settle down. It's, it's, it carries a sense of permanence. It's, it's a permanent resident, not a, not a short-term resident. So think of it this way. Perhaps some of you at some point you you bought a fixer-upper. And, and maybe you regret doing that, but you bought a fixer-upper and you've been down that road and you buy the home and, and it needs a whole lot of work and when you bought it, you bought it envisioning something very different, something that probably cost a lot of money, and over time you begin to work on it. You, you clean it up, you repair it, you knock down a wall, you remodel the kitchen, and, and you get to the point where it finally feels comfortable for you. And you say, you know what, this feels like home now. One person used this as sort of an analogy to describe what Paul is praying for. Listen to how he explains it. When Christ by his Spirit takes up residence within us, he finds a moral equivalent to trash. Black and silver wallpaper, leaking roof, and he sets about turning this residence into a place appropriate for him, a home which is comfortable. When a person takes up long-term residence somewhere, their presence eventually characterizes that dwelling. When Christ first moves into our lives, he finds us in bad repair. It takes a great deal of power to change us, and that is why Paul prays for power, He is transforming us into a house that pervasively reflects his own character. And so what Paul is asking for here is not this initial indwelling of Christ in your life, but this ongoing Christ is indwelling in me, and I'm looking more and more and more like him. And he continues that thought verse 18. So you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul's asking that God would give them two things according to the riches of his glory, a comprehension of the four dimensions of the love of Christ and a knowledge of the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Now, it may be a little bit difficult to grasp what Paul is getting at here, but... But let me tell you what we know from Scripture. Scripture speaks to the breadth of God's love, and in that includes all races. Jew, and Gentile, I mean, it includes everyone. Scripture talks about His love being as long as eternity. Jeremiah 31 tells us that He has loved you with an everlasting love. Scripture talks about God's love being higher than the heavens. Scripture speaks of His love in terms of the depth, in that God casts our sins at the bottom of, of the sea. Micah seven nineteen. And but to comprehend all this, well it takes God's strength to comprehend this. I mean this this is why after all he's praying for. He wants believers to grasp the love of God by the power of the Spirit. Now think about it this way. When a man and a woman meet and they, they date, they, they fall in love and, and, and their love becomes real and true. Even then, it's not quite complete. And the wedding night arrives. You experience love in a much deeper way, but even then, there's still more to come. As the years go by, it's not just romantic love, but love that springs from a deep-seated personal commitment to the other person, a love that grows more profound by the changing seasons of life. And And, and so a spouse... May say in all genuineness, five, ten, twenty years after being married, I love you more today than the day that we got married, because there's a growing comprehension, there's a, there's a deeper experience of that love. And when you and I grasp the love of God for us, it's a humbling experience. Christ died for us, and He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It, it draws us to Him because. We see that he's the only person who will ever truly love us, even more than we love ourselves. And this love woos us from our sin because we see that there's nothing more greater, there's nothing more desirable. There's nothing that can make us more happy than to experience the love of Christ. And no matter how much we experience the love of Christ, there will always be more to experience. Paul continues in the last half of verse 19, and and this in some ways is the climax of the request. He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now let me make it clear, this is the goal of the Christian life, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If, if you're filled with something, think about it, it consumes you. If you're filled with jealousy, you're consumed with jealousy. Consumed with bitterness, it's because you're filled with bitterness you're filled with worry, you're consumed by your worry. But if you're filled with all the fullness of God, then you're consumed and you're dominated by God himself. To be filled with all the fullness of God is a picture of total transformation. Total transformation so that the presence of God dwelling inside of a person is all consumed. It's an amazing thought to be filled up with all the fullness of God. So, so don't shy away from the implications of this truth. That as believers, we've been created to be the containers of God. He desires to pour his life into your life to the point that we're full and overflowing. To put it more simple, Paul has just laid out a request for maturity. Colossians 2.9 tells us that in Christ, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And when we come to Christ in faith, he comes to live in us. And the result, verse 19, envisions is God in Christ now reflected in us. And that leads to a total transformation, a total change. All of what Paul is praying for leads up to this climactic statement that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And it's when believers are filled to the fullness of God. That they can accomplish His purposes. Carry out His will. See the power of God at work in a mighty way to to the extent that we purposefully pray to be filled with all the fullness of God. And so one of the, the best ways to see the church grow and to see you grow is to simply pray that you be filled with all the fullness of God because this is a prayer for maturity. So not only do we pray humbly but asking for the Lord for spiritual strength and a comprehension of his, of his love, but but lastly we want to pray with great expectation. See, the last two verses form what's called a doxology. A doxology is just a formal expression of of praise to God and and it's this doxology that should change the way that you pray. It's changed the way that I pray. I mean, I'd read this verse over and over again, but several years ago I came to and I realized that as familiar as I thought I was with the passage, I missed probably the most important element of it. Look at verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, if those verses, if the greatness of God displayed in those verses don't move you an inch, please go home and read it again and again until it does. Because the the great work that Paul is talking about here, no matter how far it may seem from your reach, is not impossible with God. God can do far more abundantly, or in the original language, more exceedingly and abundantly than all you could ask or think so let me ask, how many times have you gotten up from praying and you said, well, probably asked for a bit too much there. Maybe that's out of the realm of what God can do. That was a big prayer and I probably shouldn't, shouldn't bring that to the Lord. Maybe something smaller. But even though we don't say those things, I wonder if what we ask for and the attitude we have actually reflects that thought. Sure, we, we ask God for small things, but do we ask for big things? I'm not talking about selfish things, but, but for God to make us holy, for God to do incredible things in His people, for, for God to save people who want nothing to do with Him, for His glory to be on display in the church. Do we, do we pray for these things? Think about Abraham. Moses, Gideon, David, Elijah, Nehemiah, Isaiah, the disciples, the church, Paul. God is able to do extraordinary things through ordinary people by his power at work within them. God did unthinkable things through these men and you know how he does it. He does it according to to his power at work within us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that's at work in the life of the believer. And so if that power is enough to bring Christ out of the grave, then that power is enough to accomplish everything that the Lord wills for our lives, to to see us filled with the fullness of God, to see us continually have a deeper experience of the love of Christ, for us to grasp just a little bit more each and every day of how much the Lord loves us. And the reason why he does this, the reason why God can do and does more than we could ask or think so that he would receive glory in and through his church. Now, if you take that posture in your prayer, it will shape the way that you pray. If you go to the Lord with the goal that that everything you're asking for, everything you want, everything you want to see happen would be to the glory of His name. That will ultimately shape the things that you ask for and the things that you don't ask for. And so this prayer of Paul's, we need to adopt as our own. Perhaps the wealth is nearer to us than we realize. Because you can't come to this passage fully understanding and comprehending what, what Paul is getting at here, and come away and not say, God is able. According to the riches of his glory, God is able. So so the question before you is, will you commit to praying like Paul does? Would you pray that God would strengthen us? Would you Would you pray that he would help us wrap our minds around the limitless love of God? Would you pray big prayers as if God can do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or think? Because even though Paul penned this letter some two thousand years ago, God is still able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. There's only one way to respond to that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your provision. It's greater than our need. We we come in Jesus' name deeply conscious of our weakness and our doubt. And so we ask that you would grant us a fresh faith to believe in you. We gladly lean upon you. Teach us to pray big prayers that you might be honored in a big way among us. And thank you for what you have done already. Being glorified in our midst in this church today, tomorrow, and forever, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. In him alone we pray. Amen.